This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast, episode number 81. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. Today, we're going to have a two-parter episode. Part one will be about the lessons that I've learned after being either fully retired or semi-retired for the past five years. And I definitely made some mistakes both during retirement and leading up to retirement, things that I definitely would have done differently if I was to do it all over again. So I hope that by sharing these lessons, it'll help you avoid them on your own financial independence and early retirement journey, as well as give you some insight on what it's been like to actually live off an investment portfolio as opposed to being fully reliant on a job and the income that it provides. So that will be part one of the episode. Part two will be some useful information for all the current and future Canadian small business owners out there and aspiring entrepreneurs too. So as COVID-19 restrictions loosen in many parts of the country and the world, consumers are thinking differently about their needs and wants. And during the pandemic, new habits and practices were formed and really altered how people do business. So for small business owners, it also meant many changes along the way. And in the interview, we tackle which of these practices are here to stay because they offer a good client experience and what types of businesses and experiences will Canadians seek out in the post-COVID economy? And what about the businesses that launched during the pandemic? What's next for them? So we're definitely going to be covering all that and more in part two of this episode. Now, before we jump into part one, the top lessons learned after five years of early retirement, I wanted to invite you to a free live webinar and Q&A that I'll be doing together with Arian from Enriched Academy, and it's going to be on retirement planning strategies. And you may recognize Arian from actually the last episode on the podcast as well. It was a very popular one. So do you have any idea if you will be able to fund your desired retirement lifestyle? No matter your age, if you get a bit anxious about retirement, wondering if you'll have enough, how to actually live off the portfolio, and are looking for ways to improve your planning, we'll be offering some great advice on what you can realistically do to improve your current retirement plan. And you may find that you are behind schedule, and don't worry, many Canadians are, and want to know what you can do to get caught up, or maybe you are just getting started and are wondering about which factors you need to consider. So even if you are confident that your plan is on track, definitely join us to learn about really optimizing the use of registered savings plans and how to effectively access your funds post-retirement. Now, we don't have a crystal ball, but we do have lots of reliable, practical information and tips on how you can build a more robust retirement plan and take away some of that anxiety that you may be having. So the free webinar is on November 24th, 2021 at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can sign up for free at buildwealthcanada.ca slash retirementwebinar. All one word, no dashes or spaces, just buildwealthcanada.ca slash retirementwebinar. Webinar. And we'll be having a live QA with me and Arian at the end. So I definitely encourage you to come see it live, as then you can get your questions answered by us. We'll be staying as long as we have to to answer all your questions. Plus, I'll be giving away some prizes during the webinar too, but those will only be available to those that actually attend the webinar live, as the prizes will be given away during the actual event. Now, if you're listening to this episode after November 24th, 2021, so the webinar has already taken place, or if you know you won't be able to make it live for sure on that date, you can still 
will go to that link to view the recording of the webinar. So definitely go there, enter your email, and I'll email you the recording as soon as it's up. But again, I encourage you to attend it live if you can, as then you can get your questions answered in the live Q&A, plus you'll be eligible to win some of the prizes which we'll be giving away during the live webinar. So that link again to attend live or get the recording for free when it's available is over at Build Wealth Canada ca slash retirement webinar that's buildwealthcanada.ca slash retirement webinar all one word and again no spaces no dashes just one word all right so that's it i hope you'll join me there it'll be fun to uh, interact with you live on that and now let's get into the show All right, so it's been over five years that we've been either fully retired or semi-retired. And just to give you a short synopsis in case you're not really familiar with our story, at a high level, basically we hit our financial independence number when I was 32. My wife was 31 at the time. And I define financial independence as essentially being able to live off your investments. And so by using the dividends that they pay out, any interest, if you have bonds, for example, and selling off some capital gains and being able to basically live off that and actually not run out of money. So in theory, you don't actually ever have to work anymore, don't need to get another job, don't need to start a business. You can just fully live off your portfolio as long as you keep your basically expenses in check and what you assume that they would be in retirement. So essentially being able to live off the portfolio and not have to work anymore uh, forever is is really how I define that. So that's basically what happened uh, when I was 32. Uh, so now I'm actually over 37 years old. I'm a bit past 37. And so we've been retired now for a bit over five years. And again, at a high level, really, it's been an interesting journey because when we hit that financial independence number, what happened is we both quit our jobs. We were both working full-time before that, but once we hit it, we basically both handed in our resignations. My wife became a full-time stay-at-home mom, and for myself, I wasn't really quite ready to go from two full-time incomes to zero. Uh, just, I think, mentally, mental barrier kind of thing. It's a bit, you know, especially when you have kids to support and that kind of thing, right? So what I ended up doing is I did a semi-retirement, so I basically worked part-time from home, uh, a few days a week, uh, and then it was actually my dream job. Uh, <laughs> I was it was over at Five Eye Research, doing marketing there and learning more about investments from you know Peter Hudson and Ryan Modesto, and you know some really smart guys when it comes to investing. So it, it was great. I got to do marketing, which was fun, which is something I wanted to do more of, uh, but also in the investing space and learn basically from the best when it comes to that. So I thought that was going to be a lot of fun, and it was a ton of fun. Um, but after doing that for about two years. Um, it, you know, it was interesting because we decided, well, you're kind of earning this money, even though you don't really need to, right? And and at the same time, I was curious about, well, what would full retirement be like? I'm really enjoying this job. This is a lot of fun. It's good sort of development. I like the social part of it too. But what would happen if I actually did a full stop retirement? That sounds like fun. We can go travel more with the kids, you know, that kind of a thing. And so I ended up quitting that and be transitioning to full retirement at that time. Uh, and I thought that was going to be sort of the rest of my life where I would be fully retired forever, never working again, except for the podcast, but it's like one episode a month, right? So it's not like a huge time commitment. And what happened actually was that after six months, I was feeling a little bit empty uh, in terms of the fulfillment. So it turns out that the job actually provides a lot of stimulation, uh, both from the social side, but also like intellectual stimulation, creative simulation, solving problems can actually be fun as, as long as they're problems you actually want to solve and care about and are curious about solving. So there's actually a lot of these really neat benefits to um, working and it's actually fun to work if 
the work is actually something you enjoy as opposed to you pretty much being forced to do a particular job which you don't like but you need the money because you have bills to pay right so those are two i would say kind of different worlds when it comes to um to working and so after basically six months a little bit under that i was starting to get a little bit antsy i was starting to feel pretty unfulfilled uh, because i wanted something more uh, and it was around that time that i took over the canadian financial summit uh, and so i thought okay this in theory this should be great because then i have the podcast i've got the summit which is once a year and that should sort of help fill that sort of void that I've been feeling uh, because it might be fun to, you know, play games or watch Netflix for several months or realistically less than that but after a while that gets boring that gets unfulfilling you actually stop enjoying it it's not as fun anymore uh, it's not as rewarding and so it actually is not a sustainable lifestyle at least it wasn't for me uh, and I theorize that for a lot of people who are very sort of type a they do want to retire early and they work really hard to do that it's very hard for someone who's very type A and driven and wants to achieve these big goals to all of a sudden be in their 30s and say, or even, you know, 40s and say, okay, that's it, I'm hanging on my hat and I'm never going to work again. I mean, you're, you're just not wired in that way to do that and I think to enjoy that kind of lifestyle. At least that was the case for me. And so now I'm sort of unapologetically semi-retired. Um, so I have the podcast, I have the Kenyan Financial Summit and and I think that's that's enough. Um, you know, you get sort of all those benefits of working but it's something you actually enjoy doing and it's fun and you get to learn and you get to share what you learn to others by interviewing them. So um, that personally is what I found to be a really good balance uh, for myself. And so that was kind of, you know, one, one big lesson, right, is that um, full retirement and a life of just leisure is actually not all that it's cracked up to be, especially if you are wired the way I am, which, and I think a lot of people who reach financial independence early are wired in the specific way where they maybe can't just fully relax. And I mean, everybody that I've talked to uh, who has achieved financial independence this early, they still have sort of a lot of fire burning right in their belly they actually still want to do something they want to be productive members of society they just kind of want to do it on their own terms as opposed to being told by a boss what they need to do and so that i think is a very very big uh, distinction so now that we've either been fully retired or semi-retired for five years well over five years i guess at this point Five years is actually a really nice milestone um, because I'm no longer a beginner when it comes to living off the portfolio. So before you retire, it's really all just theory, right? You read from what others have done. You try to learn from that. You can learn the theory, the optimizations behind it, but you're not actually doing it in real life. But once you actually retire and you're living off your portfolio, you know, that kind of puts some hairs on your chest in terms of actually experiencing it. Um, and so after doing it for five years, I can say, okay, I actually know how to do this now uh, and can do it sustainably and not get stressed out about it. And uh, so there's definitely some key lessons there. The other big thing with sort of that five-year milestone is that we are no longer in that high-risk sequence of returns risk zone. And so in case maybe you're new to all this and the FIRE movement or just retirement in general, a sequence of returns risks, a sequence of returns risk is a very significant thing that's very top of mind when you first retire. And really what that is in a nutshell is let's say you have a portfolio, you've built it up, you've ran the models, and it looks like, yeah, you'll be able to live off this for the rest of your life. And that's great. However, where portfolios can fail, i.e. you run out of money, is if you retire, and let's say you're assuming an 8% return or a 6% return, you know, but that's the average, right? But what if in the very, very beginning, so within the first five years, what if in that you have like a 2008 financial crisis type scenario? Or when we had the COVID situation where, you know, the markets fell like 30, 35%, depending on what you're invested in. Mind you, it, they rebound, they bounced back very, very quickly. So the COVID thing was not really the best example, but 2008, for instance, I think would be a really good example, right? 
right? Where it's a sort of prolonged downward period. And so let's say you retired and then a month from that, you had the 2008 financial crisis and you're not earning any more money. Your spouse is not earning any more money. You're fully living off the portfolio. The markets are down, let, you know, let's say they're down 40% or 30% and you still need to pay your property tax. You still need to pay for your car. You still need money for groceries. You're not working anymore. So all the choice you have is, well, I guess we have to sell off some of our portfolio, even though it is at these really, really low rates. And we know long-term it's going to bounce back, but right now the prices are so low and we're basically forced to sell at the bottom or you know, definitely not at the top and selling potentially at a loss just because at the end of the day, we still got to eat. We still have to pay our day-to-day non-discretionary expenses, right? And so if that happens for for a prolonged period of time, you can actually deplete your portfolio very, very quickly. And so where people get into trouble, where retirees can get into a lot of trouble, is that they have a scenario like 2008, they deplete their portfolio way too quickly, um, just because they got, they basically got unlucky, right? The market just fell shortly after they retired, uh, or, you know, within five years. And then when the markets start bouncing back and, and the markets go in cycles, right? So eventually there is a recovery, but they are not able to ride that recovery as well because the portfolio is so severely depleted when they were selling, you know, at or near the bottom, right? Just to pay for their day-to-day expenses, right? And so the whole kind of idea here is you, you really don't want to be get a bad sequence of returns where you get horrible returns at the beginning of retirement because that could deplete your portfolio so heavily that you're not able to ride the wave back up because your portfolio is so small. And so you actually end up potentially running out of money down the road. And so five years is sort of that danger zone. And if you Google sequence of returns risks, you know, in the early retirement community or just retirement community in general, there's a lot of articles written out, a lot of studies, a lot of really, really good information. But basically the gist of it is is five years is sort of that danger zone. Some people will argue that it's, it's actually 10 years, but I would say yeah, the five years are kind of the most, you know, really, really critical where it becomes stressful. And once you sort of get past that five years, in my opinion, you can sort of, you know, wipe the sweat off your brow. You're, you're no longer as nervous about it because it's like, okay, we did not get a bad sequence. Everything was good. Things turned out well. I mean, in our case, you know, the COVID thing was still within the five years and we still ended up fine. And now what happens if you don't get this bad sequence, then your portfolio actually has realistically grown quite a bit. And so now your portfolio is much larger than it was when you first started because you did not get a horrible sequence. And now, even if you get like a 2008 scenario, the chances are failure are way, way smaller because yeah, your portfolio is going to take a massive hit, but you're a, but because it's so big to begin with, you're still going to be able to use some of it to pay for your groceries without, you know, sabotaging your portfolio long-term. So that's essentially the gist of the sequence of returns risk. And it's something you really do want to educate yourself on, uh, even though I just kind of gave you the quick sort of, you know, one-on-one version, especially when you are, planning an early retirement or just going even into a traditional retirement, it's something that you do want to have top of mind. And you want to definitely give some thought into, okay, if we do get a really, really bad sequence, how are we going to weather the storm, right? What are we going to do? Are we going to maybe work for an extra year or for a little bit extra to have a cash cushion saved up? Or are we going to realize that, hey, maybe we have to go back to work for a little bit because we don't want to sell our investments when they're at the bottom, right? So there's different levers you can pull and we'll talk about that in a bit, but that's just something you really, really want to consider. And so what I hope with this particular episode, the solo episode, and let me know what you think, because usually I don't do these. Usually I do interviews because that's fun because I get to learn more. But I thought, hey, it's been five years. There's been a lot of lessons learned. And you know, if I can 
impart some lessons to you, then hopefully that will help you a lot uh, so that you don't make the same mistakes that I did. I, I, I wish someone did that to me. And there are some people in the FI community that have done that to me that did an even you know, earlier retirement than I did. And so it, I find it's really, really great uh, to learn from each other in this community because it can save you lots of money, save you lots of stress and, and make you uh, make you a lot happier. And it is nice to I think, be able to share this with you because it's no longer just theory. So one of the, the sort of interesting things is if you go to even, you know, really, really good financial planner, for example, like good fee-for-service financial planner, you know, they're, they can help you plan these things out. And you should use someone like that to help you plan things out when you're about to hit retirement, you know, but it's still sort of like theory at that point because they're not actually retired, right? So um, they're not going through that themselves, but they know enough about it to help guide you through it. And so if you are looking for someone that is, if you're a financial planner, for example, you do want to make sure that even though they're not retired, because they're obviously not retired since they're helping you, you want to make sure that they have gone through this process with some other other clients so that they are familiar with sort of the nuances of being in that decumulation stage instead of just being in that accumulation stage. Because there's some advisors or, or planners that are very good at decumulation stage, but they don't really focus on decumulation. So you definitely want to focus on that too. So the first big lesson that I had is that living off your portfolio is not as rigid as you may think, or it doesn't have to be as rigid as you think. And it also doesn't have to be all that stressful. So I had a lot of anxiety before handing in my resignation, even though you know I ran the financial models. I, I've actually, I actually have training in financial planning software and all that. So I actually know how to do this myself to make sure the model, you know, the financials are actually sustainable on our end and, and we're going to be okay. So I ran it myself. I hired two independent financial planners uh, to also run my numbers in their own way using their own software, right? So it's like, I know how to do it. And I had two other people that I <laughs> that I had do it as well who were qualified and it's just to make sure because I was super, super nervous about handing in the resignation. Um, and so it actually doesn't have to be uh, that stressful. And, and a big shout out to Christy um, and Bryce from uh, Millennial Revolution. They've really kind of, they retired a little bit before we did. And so they basically helped walk, uh, walk me through it or at least help me a little de-stress and, and <laughs> not always think of the worst case scenario. And so again, I think the big concern here, the big thing that was driving the anxiety was I was worried, well, what if we run out of money, right? What if we get a bad sequence of returns? Plus I have kids, right? So there's that whole extra level of stress. In reality, though, when the analogy that I came up with this, and it might be cheesy, I don't know, but hopefully you find it useful, is that you don't actually have to go down with the plane. Uh, And so what I mean by that is, let's say you are flying a plane and one of the instruments tells you that something is wrong with the plane. It's not like as the pilot, you just sit back and you just wait for the plane to crash or hopefully not crash, just, you know, kind of cross your fingers and do nothing, Uh, you know, and that's not what happens realistically, right? There's lots of backups. There's lots of options that you have in place that you can do uh, to make sure that you don't actually just crash and burn. So maybe you head back to the airport. Maybe you use one of the backups systems that the plane has for just such situations. Maybe you do an emergency landing. Maybe you start putting on your parachute, <laughs> right? So there are lots of different things. It's not like, oh, something's wrong. Okay, let's just, I guess we're we're in trouble. I guess we're just going to give up and cross our fingers and hopefully we survive the plane crash, right? That's not what happens. You don't just tighten your seatbelt and, and sort of hope for the best while the plane crashes. Well, in retirement, you are basically the pilot of your portfolio. You're the pilot of your financial life. And so you do have plenty of options as well. So it's not like you're just going to sit there while your portfolio goes to zero because you are refusing to adapt to the situation, right? Especially if you're doing an early retirement and you're still able to generate income by working if you need to. 
So for example, let's say you retire and then within a year, there is a really, really big market crash and you're nervous. You don't know if your portfolio can you know sustain that. Well, again, you don't have to just kind of cross your fingers and say, well, I hope the 4% rule works for me or oh, I hope the 3.5% rule works for me. There's different things that you can do, right? Just like the pilot, different tools, different um, levers you can pull. The same kind of goes for your retirement, right? So there are several different options. And I think I, now I understand this, and now I don't find early retirement really stressful anymore. Whereas in the beginning, I was I was totally afraid of you know running out of money in the portfolio. But let's say things are not going so well in the markets. Well, what can you do? Well, you can earn some side income in an area that you are very passionate about, right? So for me, it's it's with the podcast, it's with the financial summit, right? There's different things that you can do that you enjoy anyway that you're probably going to be researching and you want to interview people about. Let's say anyway. Well, what if you turn that into a bit of a side business? It's not going to make as much money probably as you did during your, you know, when you had your working career, but it could be enough to weather those storms. Um, The other lever you can pull is you can spend less on discretionary things, right? So you could do things locally. And I think a lot of us learned a lot about this uh, during COVID, right? Where we were not able to travel when things were really bad, you're pretty much stuck at home, but you're still looking to do different things, right? So maybe you started hiking, maybe you started mountain biking, maybe oh, there's all these really great things that you can do that are still very enjoyable. They're still very healthy, but they don't actually cost a lot of money. And in some cases, you know, like going for a hike is actually free, right? Um, so that's another thing you can do is just cut those, some sort of that discretionary spending. So yeah, maybe you're not taking that Europe trip you were hoping for this year because the markets are doing really bad, but that's okay. So let's go see local things instead. Let's go see things where we don't have to fly to them or drive for many, many hours and stay at hotels, right? So you definitely have that powerful lever to pull as well. Uh, The other big lever you can pull is geographic arbitrage. And I personally have not done this because we have kids. My daughter is already going to school. I don't want to just keep moving her around and around and around. She's got her friends. She's got the stability. So for me personally, as a parent, that is not a great fit. Although there are parents that, that do that, there's different approaches. Bryce and Christy, again, come to mind here. That's something that they talk about quite a bit is because they are it's just the two of them. They have no kids. And so they're, they would they said before that if the markets, let's say, take took a really, really bad turn, well, then they're not going to go live in London, England for the year. They're not going to go live in downtown Toronto for the year. They're going to go, uh, let's say, to Asia and some of the countries there where there is a much lower cost of living. And so you're able to drastically decrease those non-discretionary expenses by actually moving to a lower cost of living country. So that is a really, really powerful lever. Again, not one that I would personally pull because of the kid situation and I don't want to really uproot them and all that. Plus we have a house here, but but definitely, definitely something that's very, very powerful uh, that you definitely can pull and is definitely an option. You know, especially if you're fully retired and your kids are out of the nest, right? Then that's not that big of a consideration anymore. Or if you have no kids, right? Then that's definitely not something you really have to worry about either. The other thing is instead of, let's say, watching more Netflix, you can explore hobbies that appeal to you that can actually bring in an income, right? So for me, like I said, it's the podcast, it's the financial summit. I'm sure there is something for you that you could do. Like if you're an artist, you could sell some of your art. If you like woodworking, you can sell some of your creations. If you're good with computers or setting up some sort of technology and you enjoy that, you can actually help people with that as a consultant, right? So just to be open-minded where, look, there are some skills I'm sure you have, and it could be things that you're going to do for fun anyway, right? You're going to be painting anyway if you love to paint. You know, I have friends who love woodworking, they're going to be, they don't do that for the money. They do it for free. It actually costs them money to do, but yeah, they could sell some other creations if they really were in a pinch instead of having to go back and do a cubicle job, right? So that's something that I would say you definitely want to keep in mind. And again, remember that you can do this so you don't have to get so stressed out every time the markets take a tumble. And again, there's, there's lots and lots of options uh, when it comes to sort of this free hobby and monetizing your hobby. It's not like you need to start some new tech company and have a home run and that kind of a thing, right? It's just a little bit of money there, a little bit of money here, 
there and it can really, really add up. So one thing that's really decreased my stress level about this and about potentially running out of money if we have another 2008 crash or something of that nature is realizing how just a little bit of side income can really drastically lower the failure rate that you might think your portfolio has. And so you might have heard me use this example before, but just bear with me as as I really keep going back to this, even myself, just to remember when you start feeling anxiety because you don't have that paycheck coming in that you've been used to coming in, you know, probably for your whole working life. So let's say that you wanted to generate an extra $10,000 per year. So if you use the 4% rule, and the rule of 25 is another way of, of basically getting that same sort of math. To get an extra $10,000 per year using the 4% rule, you would need a portfolio of around $250,000, roughly, right? We're not going to talk about taxes a little bit later, but just to give you sort of a ballpark, right? So if I have an extra $10,000 coming in from some side income, some side hob, you're just knowing that I can generate this if I need to. That's like having an extra $250,000 in the bank now or in your portfolio. Now, some people will argue and unrightfully so that, okay, if you're doing an early retirement, you can't really use the 4% rule. That was more intended for people with a more traditional 30 year retirement. And so fair enough. And so let's use a more sort of conservative withdrawal rate. So we'll use 3.33%. And if you go down the rabbit hole and you research this yourself, you'll see that there's quite a bit of consensus from a lot of very respected people in this field that 3.33% is a pretty safe number to use, even for early retirees. You can use 3% if you want to be like even more conservative, but you know generally that's a good number to use. So in that particular scenario, if you use that math instead, then $10,000 that you have coming in in income, that's basically the rule of, if you use the rule of 30, that would be equivalent to a $300,000 portfolio, right? So that is a lot of money that if you can just generate 10K. So using an extra $10,000 to, let's say, pay for groceries because the markets have really, really tumbled, how many hours of work do you actually have to do within a year? So let's assume that you're getting paid only $25 an hour. And I know you listening to this are probably making a lot more than that, but let's assume that you have, you're not working at your high-paying job anymore, right? You have left, you've retired, and you're looking to monetize a hobby that you actually enjoy doing, right? So yeah, you're probably not going to be making six figures you know, if you were like some engineer in Toronto, but you, I'm sure you could make $25 on doing something that you enjoy, even if it's not a highly profitable thing and a highly profitable industry. So $25, I think, is a very you know conservative number to use. And so to get $10,000 at $25 an hour, that's 400 hours that you would have to work for a year, uh, in the, within the year to get that, okay? And so if we divide that up to see, well, how many hours do I have to work per week? week to get that, that's 7.69 hours per week. So basically you have to work less than one day per week to get that if you're single, right? So that sounds pretty reasonable. You've got seven days in a week to do whatever you want. What if things got really bad financially in the markets? Well, you could just work one day a week doing something you actually love doing, only getting paid 25 an hour, but that is enough, right? That all of a sudden sounds pretty reasonable, right? You're getting paid to do something you like anyway. Now, what's interesting is this is if you're single, right? If you have a partner, then you can basically divide that number by two. So you really have to work less than a day. It ends up being 3.85 um, hours per week <laughs> that you have to work on your passion project, right? To get that um, that 10,000, right? Because you're putting in 5,000, your partner's putting in 5,000, right? So you're basically working, well, like a half day once a week, and that is enough to basically help supplement your portfolio so that you don't have to sell things at the bottom to, let's say, pay for groceries or something like that. Now, I'm sure some people will say, okay, well, what about taxes, right? You're, you're, that's obviously a big thing. It's a big expense. We need to factor that in. So, okay, fair enough. 
what happens is in Canada, we basically get the basic personal amount, right? So there's a certain amount that everybody can earn before they start getting taxed. And so as of the 2022 numbers, uh, if we're looking at federal level, that's $14,398, right? So a bit over $14,000 you can earn tax-free at the federal level. You're going to get taxed provincially a little bit as well, but that's much, much smaller amounts. I'm just going to use federal for simplicity because People from all over Canada listen to this, so federal makes more sense as it applies to everyone. So that's fourteen thousand over fourteen thousand dollars that you can get tax free, that you can earn, and that will be tax free. And that also your partner can also earn that tax free, right? So if you add that up together, that's over twenty eight thousand dollars that you can earn tax free. And that actually is quite a bit of money that a lot of people can live off, especially if you have your mortgage paid off and if you're not living in a very, very expensive area. Uh, like if we, we're living here in Kitchener, Ontario. Uh, we've got the, the house is paid off as well. And so when I calculated our expenses last year, we it's basically our expenses are between $30,000 and $35,000 per year. Because again, we don't have a mortgage, that kind of a thing. And that is, I'm sure, going to seem very low to a lot of people. But just know that the expenses really go down drastically once you are not working because you don't need two cars anymore. There's all, you know, you don't need to get new clothes all the time for, for work or whatever. You don't have to travel for work. There's just, there's so many savings once you actually are retired. And so like in our case, if, if we're spending between 30 and 35,000 a year, well, 28,000 of that is basically tax-free, uh, which is great. And then the thing is, depending on how you withdraw from, how you withdraw, how much you withdraw from each account, you can actually stretch that money quite a bit, right? So if I took that money, if I say, okay, I need, I need six thousand more dollars on top of that. Okay, well, I, if I take that out of the TFSA, that's not going to impact my taxes at all because it's a TFSA. If I take that out of a taxable account as a capital gain, those are taxed very favorably as well. So our dividends that I keep receiving from the investments as well. And so the tax thing, yes, is that we always have to factor in tax, but keep in mind that as long as your expenses are relatively low, you're not getting hit with these really high tax rates that you're used to uh, when you're working, right? When you're in your working years, let's say you have a six-figure uh, job or you know, or somewhere close to it, you're getting taxed a ton, right? Whereas if you're retired and you don't have these expenses anymore and you don't have this debt anymore, the money money actually can stretch so much further because you are in the lowest tax rate. So really one of the big lessons that I've learned over the past five years is that having options is key, uh, both in terms of income as well as expense flexibility. So don't, we talked about the income piece already, right? It is opening up yourself so that if you do need to earn an extra income, you can. Obviously, that's a huge, huge advantage to be able to basically alleviate the stress and also not have to sell at the bottom. But having expense flexibility is also very, very important. So in other words, not locking yourself into expenses that are hard to get out of. And so some examples of that would be you decide to buy a cottage or move to a much larger house and take on a giant mortgage or take on a giant car loan. I'm not saying someone, if you do that, you're, you're bad or whatever the case may be. It's just keep in mind that when you take on these things, these are big cash flow drains that are really gonna hurt you in retirement. And so if you want to do those, fine, go ahead and do it, but just know that you won't be as nimble if the markets take a tumble, right? Because the maintenance on the cottage still has to get paid, the property tax still has to get paid, right? All those expenses are are there and are much harder to get out of. And so me personally, the way we've structured it is, hey, if we want to go to a cottage, we'll go rent a cottage and, and that's it. And if we want to 
I don't we want to drive some fancy car instead of buying some $80,000 car. Instead, hey, we can go rent a car for a day, have fun drawing some cool convertible, that kind of a thing. That is just a one-time sort of expense, or we can do that several times a year if we really want. That is a lot different than, let's say, buying that $80,000 car, taking out a loan. Now you've got monthly payments. Now you've got maintenance on that car. You got to pay for the insurance, all that kind of thing, right? So that is Again, one thing that I've learned is that, yeah, you definitely don't want to have sort of those really high recurring expenses in retirement because that way, you know, this way you can keep things nice and lean, nice and flexible. And if things take a tumble, it's like, hey, okay, we'll just cut this out. We won't do this. We won't take the Europe trip and we can earn some extra money if we need to. And it makes you a lot less stressed in retirement. So actually like the renting thing turns out to be really, really good, uh, especially because you don't know how much you'll like the thing either, right? So instead of going out and buying a cottage, well, what if you just rented a different cottage once a year so you get to figure out which ones you like you get to experiment you don't have to deal with the upkeep there's a lot of benefits to that kind of uh, thing as well and so a big lesson here is that if you are willing to generate some extra income if needed if you have flexibility with your expenses, then you may not actually need a million dollar portfolio or more to retire. I think a lot of people get intimidated by that, right? Because you go, you do this reading, you do the Google searches, and it's like, yeah, you need you know million dollar portfolio if you want to retire. And then I can see that being a little bit overwhelming because if you're nowhere close to that, you know, you just kind of throw your hands up and it's like, well, why even try? There's no way I can even get there. But you actually do need a lot less. Like I said, if you just generate a little bit of income, that's equivalent to a really, really substantial portfolio. So what if you're saying, hey, I'm just going to work 20 hours a week, maybe 10 hours a week, or, you know, I do 10 hours, my partner does 10 hours, you know, something of that nature, right? That can drastically decrease how large your portfolio has to be to actually retire. And yeah, you're semi-retired as opposed to fully retired, but but that's okay. And like I said, kind of in my experience, you actually want to be semi-retired and not fully retired because doing some sort of productive work, I mean, there's so many benefits that I think I've already mentioned. And a big thing to consider is instead of calling it work, it's it's you're doing productive projects and it's a way for you to exercise your brain and not just your physical health, right? So a lot of people when they retire, like myself included, went on a big physical uh, health sort of binge, right? And I'm still on it right now where we're trying to, we have a lot more time. So we're trying to eat a lot more healthier. We're trying to exercise a lot more. And that's awesome. And I totally encourage you to do that. And it's a lot of fun because, you know, what's the point of having this money and living off your portfolio if you're going to die early anyway, because you're not healthy, right? So the health thing I would say is, is super, super critical. Uh, but but there's not just physical health, right? There's also the, the mental health. And you do actually need to exercise your brain uh, for it not to decline. So you do want to do something where you're doing problem solving. You do want something where you have intellectual stimulation, where you have a creative outlet. And all these things, they help fight off mental illness and, and potential depression as well. Plus, you know, when you're doing a hobby, you're getting involved with people in sort of that hobby or topic that you love, and they are passionate about that as well. And so there's that human relationship element too, which is also a key to happiness and, and mental health. So that really brings me to sort of the last big lesson that I wanted to, to say for today and is that full stop retirement can actually be very unfulfilling. It definitely was in my case, and it is actually in the majority of people that I talk to, an overwhelming majority of people. Uh, and so that's why I went back to semi-retirement after doing the full-time retirement. And I would actually say that my big mistake was that I waited too long to have a big enough portfolio. So I was scared. I want to make sure we have enough. And again, in all my modeling, I assumed that I would not be working again and that my wife would never be working again. And so if that's the scenario, then that means you need a really large portfolio. And so if I actually was to do it all over again, I would have just said, look, let's just assume that I'm going to work, let's say 10 hours a week. 
my wife's going to work 10 hours a week. So basically together, that's like one part-time job. That's going to bring in some extra income, some extra cash flow. We're going to make sure that these jobs are things that we actually enjoy and are fun to do. So they, they don't have to be high paying. That's not the point. And if we actually factor that and then model things out that way with our financial planner, we would have actually been able to retire way, way quicker. So the people that actually want to do a full stop retirement and never work again, that's when your portfolio needs to be you know $1 million plus and potentially very, very high because it's going to be high enough to weather all those storms so that even when we have a 40% decrease in the markets, you still have to sell off some of those investments to eat. Whereas if you've got the income coming in, you can just spend some of that money you earned on your groceries or whatever the case may be. So if you're going to have maybe one key takeaway from all of this, I would say is that definitely strive for an early retirement, but make it an early semi-retirement with the goal being working at something that you actually enjoy part-time. Because if you are able to do that, then you no longer have to work in a job that you don't enjoy. You don't have to necessarily incur all the stress that come with that job. Um, So kind of try to set up your life, I would say, in such a way where you're able to sort of work on that passion, get paid a bit for it, not as much as your regular job, but that's okay. That's not the point. And when doing things that way, you know, you could work even less than part-time. Your partner can work less than part-time and you can spend the rest of the time having fun, traveling, focusing on your health, that kind of thing. So I hope that was helpful. I actually had a whole bunch of other lessons planned, but I'm looking at the time here and this episode's already getting pretty long and we still have part two of the episode as well. Um, So maybe what I'll do is I'll leave it off there and let me know if you like this kind of thing because uh, I do have lots of lessons and then I keep adding to them as well, right? Because as you experience this, you learn and you reflect and I'm happy to pass these on to you because I figure, I mean, there's been a lot of people that in the FI community that have helped me out uh, when I first retired and I wasn't sure and all these sort of experiences that they shared with me and lessons learned really helped me as well in terms of being happier and reducing anxiety and all that kind of thing and feeling fulfilled. And so I'm really just trying to do the same for you. Um, and also kind of give you some shortcuts so that you don't have to wait till you're, you know, 60 to retire with a gigantic portfolio, that kind of a thing. So let me know if this is useful. If it's not, no problem. Um, I'll just keep doing interviews all the time, <laughs> not doing solo shows, but I figure maybe it's worth it to do one, you know, some of these sessions every once in a while um, to to hopefully help you out and hopefully you find that useful. Um, so let me know. Uh, my email is cornell at buildwealthcanada.ca. So just K-O-R-N-E-L at buildwealthcanada.ca um, or just sign up at buildwealthcanada.ca and then you'll automatically get my email and then you can just reply to any one of the automated emails you get when you sign up and I'll get that email and I'll check it out. I get an absolute ton of emails so I can't reply to every single one, but I definitely do read all of them and I will definitely take your feedback and use that to figure out whether we should do more like this or not. All right. So I hope you liked it. And now a quick break to tell you about some of the resources you may find helpful on our Build Wealth Canada site. Hey, it's Cornell. As you heard in the intro, I'll be doing a live free retirement planning webinar and Q&A with Arian from Enriched Academy. And again, the link to that is buildwealthcanada.ca slash retirement webinar. Now, one of the additional free resources that I wanted to mention is that Arian and his team actually have a one-on-one coaching program. And I'm actually going through it myself right now to see if there are any additional ways that I can optimize my own finances. Now, I've had my first two coaching calls already, and it actually blew me away how even after just 
the first call, my coach Lana was already able to, to identify two key areas that could really boost our net worth even further, especially with the low interest rates that we're having now. And I was surprised, to be honest. I'm a complete money nerd. I've been optimizing my finances for decades at this point. So I thought, are there really any other optimizations that I could do that will actually move the needle for us? But I thought, hey, Cornell, you don't know what you don't know. There's always more to learn. So let's give it a shot. And like I said, after just one meeting, my coach was already able to identify two key areas to boost our net worth and our returns even further. I'll be sharing more with you on that in the future. Once I implement these strategies, we're actually going to be tackling retirement planning in my next coaching session with them. But for now, what Arian and his team have done is they've created a custom page for Build Wealth Canada listeners where you can get a free assessment call with one of their coaches, just like I had. And now I highly recommend that you give this a shot as it's free. I'm sure you'll learn an absolute ton like I did. They've put a lot of effort in making this available for free to Build Wealth Canada listeners. They have real-life coaches standing by that you can actually have a free one-on-one call with. And what's really neat is that their students, like myself, actually track the results of the coaching. And so to date, on average, the Canadians that they've coached have increased their passive income by $2,342, have increased their net worth by $44,932, increased their credit score by 25 points, and reduced their advisor fees by 1.25%. And as you know, if you've listened to past episodes, that 1.25% savings can easily save you tens of thousands of dollars in unnecessary fees over your lifetime. And like I said, based on the value that I personally received, even just after one coaching call, I'm not all that surprised by those results. So the special page that they've set up for Build Wealth Canada listeners to get the free one-on-one assessment call is over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash enriched. So give it a shot. It's free. There's no obligation or anything like that. And I'm sure you'll get some awesome value out of it just like I did. Now, last but not least, I want to give you a bit more information on the free retirement planning webinar that we're doing on November 24th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And again, if you are listening to this and it's already past that date, or if you already know that you definitely won't be able to make it, you can still go to that sign up link and you'll get the recording of the webinar for free. So you'll still learn an absolute ton. But if you don't attend live, you'll miss out on the live Q&A that Arian and I will be doing with all the attendees. And you'll miss out on the prizes that we'll be giving away during the live webinar too. So that link again to attend for free or get the recording of the webinar is over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash retirement webinar. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash retirement webinar. All one word, no spaces or dashes or anything like that. Now, one of the big reasons that Erin and I decided to focus on this topic of retirement is that through the surveys that each of us have done, we found that a lot of Canadians definitely get some anxiety and fear around retirement planning. And I think a big reason for this is that the factors affecting your plans and how much you need to generate sufficient income in retirement are really constantly changing and there's so many variables. So for instance, income and savings rates can fluctuate wildly depending if you you, you lose your job or maybe you get sick and can't work or people are also living longer and retiring earlier. Interest rates are at record lows. Real estate keeps soaring. The stock market, as we know, is always fluctuating. Inflation has been rising and all of these and a lot more can really seriously impact your retirement numbers and your finances in general. So it's really not that big of a surprise why people are sort of getting nervous and confused about retirement because you're trying to sort of hit this goal based on certain variables, but those variables keep changing, right? And that can really, really sway your numbers. Now, in this webinar, our goal will be to explain away some of the uncertainty around retirement planning. We'll be going over optimal use of registered accounts, so RSP, TFSA, RIFs, talking about retirement timeframes and how to best access your funds post-retirement. 
So the session is an hour long. It might be longer depending on how many questions we get. As definitely will be staying on to answer all the questions and it will be packed with lots of great information. And so this will be relevant to you whether you are closing in on your retirement day or are just starting out or are already well on your way in the accumulation phase. So the link again to join us for the free webinar is over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash retirement webinar. All right, I hope to see you there. All right, so that concludes part one of the episode on retirement planning. Part two of this episode is going to be specifically for new and existing small Canadian businesses. And for this, I brought on Don Ludlow from RBC's Small Business Division to give us some insights on what they are seeing Canadian small businesses go through now that things are starting to open up in this COVID era. Now, just to give some context, I thought it would be great to have someone from the small business division of RBC on again, as they are one of the largest banks in Canada with literally thousands of small businesses banking with them, myself included. And so because of that, they have an incredible amount of stats and research when it comes to small businesses in Canada. So I thought it would be great for them to come on and share some of these insights with us, especially as our economy starts to open back up. And that obviously implies some changes that we as Canadian small business owners need to face. Now, before I get into Don's bio, I did want to tell you about a page on their site, which provides a lot of free resources to small business owners. And I actually used it myself to learn about the accounting software, which I now use for both Build Wealth Canada and the Canadian Financial Summit. And what's really neat about that is that the software, which is called Wave, by the way, it integrates with my RBC business account and automatically enters all the transactions. So I no longer have to manually add all my business expenses, which has been a huge time and money saver for me. And what's neat is that because RBC is so large, they've actually arranged special deals with other companies that help small business owners. So you can actually get discounts and bonuses on services for your business that you're going to use anyway by going through the RBC page. So if you want to check that out, plus lots of other free resources that they have for Canadian small business owners, you can get that at buildwealthcanada.ca slash RBC. And you don't have to enter email or anything like that. So it's definitely worth checking out, uh, both in terms of the educational resources they have there, plus all these other really neat arrangements that they have with other companies to basically help automate your business and make it so you don't waste time, uh, like with your accounting, like in my example. So again, that link is buildwealthcanada.ca slash RBC. All right, so my guest today is Don Ludlow. Don is the Vice President of Small Business Strategy and Partnerships at RBC, and his team's job is essentially to help Canadian entrepreneurs successfully start, manage, and grow their business. He has over 20 years of experience in the industry, and one other interesting fact was that prior to joining RBC, Don served as an infantry officer in the Canadian Army, where he actually led soldiers on a number of domestic and international operations, and his wife is a small business owner as well, so he's got some good insight and experience on not only the Canadian small business side from his role specializing in this at RBC, but also by actually being married to someone and living with someone that is a fellow small business owner. So that obviously helps a lot too uh, in terms of knowing what small business owners care about and actually need help with. All right, so thanks for tuning in and let's get into the interview with Don. All right, Don, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Cornell. Awesome. So Don, you and your team are one of the largest banks in Canada that small businesses bank with. And so I'm sure because of that scale, you've got some unique data and insights on what tends to help Canadian small businesses succeed. So what pandemic-related small business trends do you think are here to stay in the post-COVID economy that you think small business owners should really embrace? Yes, it's a great question. And and for sure, the pandemic has, has served as a bit of a catalyst 
um, that accelerated, um, you know, a number of trends that were, were already underway um, and, you know, created new opportunities as well. And, and a couple of really stand out. The first is the, the growing demand for e-commerce and uh, digital payments. And, and this was, you know, clearly underway before the pandemic, but, you know, really accelerated during the pandemic. And we know that Canadians are really looking forward to continuing as we exit the pandemic, uh, online shopping, things like curbside pickup, and very personalized services that uh, that you can get through uh, through e-commerce. So, you know, that's the first thing that I think business owners really need to be attuned to. The, the second, perhaps not surprisingly, is um, a real awareness and desire for employee wellness and, in fact, overall health and safety, um, you know, concerns or measures in, uh, in stores. Um, and, you know, Canadians expect there to be a heightened level of... Uh, of, of hygiene and, and health and safety measures for employees, um, even after the pandemic. And then, you know, finally, we'd say, you know, the rise of what we call the socially and locally conscious consumer. Um, there's a really strong desire amongst Canadians to, uh, to shop local and support businesses that, uh, that are really important to them, like uh, businesses owned by Black, Indigenous and people of colour uh, and the uh, members of the LGBTQ plus community. So using their purchasing power for things that they think are important. Do you think the pandemic has kind of accelerated that piece in terms of people now caring a lot more about, you know, those types of things and and sort of supporting the local business and diversity and all that? Do you think that's been sort of enhanced in some way because of the pandemic? For sure. It it really comes out uh, loud and clear. In fact, over three quarters of Canadians, uh, 77% plan to spend money locally to support local businesses and uh, and businesses that uh, that are important to them, and and that's particularly strong uh, amongst uh, millennials who uh, who I think you know want to use their their spending dollars to support uh, you know causes and things that are important to them. That's very interesting. Yeah, I could see that happening because they maybe would go downtown, they would see their favorite shop maybe closed down or their favorite mom and shop store closed down. Let's say because of the trouble, right, that a lot of places did get into because of the pandemic when everything was closed down. And so it's it's one of those things where kind of when you see it happening right in front of your face, it, it kind of hits home a lot harder, right, than just hearing it in the headline or something like that on the newspaper. Yes, I think we've all come to appreciate, um, you know, just by seeing what's going on in our communities, the importance of small businesses and and, you know, just have a very genuine desire to support small business owners. Mm-hmm. And now we've seen entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial aspirations trend up through the pandemic. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, I, I think w- where there's challenge, there's also opportunity. And, you know, the pandemic um, has has perhaps been a bit of an inflection point for people to, you know, to pause and reflect and see where they are in their lives. Uh, and for for many, that uh, that has um, sparked uh, an interest um, in, in business ownership. Um, that, that could be partly because maybe they don't see opportunities in the employment market, um, you know, that, that, they, that they would like. But I think also um, the pandemic has actually opened up and created all kinds of new opportunities for business ideas and business owners. So, you know, it's interesting that, you know, the pandemic has also been a catalyst for, um, you know, for entrepreneurialism. Yeah, it's very interesting when you look at the previous generations and like when I look at my parents' generation, it was very common to stick with the same employer for a 
potentially even your lifetime, right? Uh, the, the pensions were a lot more common as well. And then we've we've heard about these trends, how millennials no longer really do that, how things are different, that they might switch jobs every year or two, that kind of a thing. And, and it seems like COVID has pushed things even further that way because if somebody even, if someone had the intention of staying with their job very long-term, maybe they got laid off because of the hardships that the pandemic has brought on, right? And so maybe they never thought of the entrepreneurial path and all of a sudden it's like, hey, a job isn't actually as safe as I maybe once thought. Maybe I should actually diversify my income sources. Do you think, do you see that happening a lot from the data that you're exposed to? Yes, and and I think also um, people having the chance to just observe uh, what's going on in their communities and in the broader economy, and and seeing new opportunities that that have been created uh, from the pandemic, whether that's in you know retail and consumer services or uh, or you know B two B services, that kind of thing. So you know, I I think there's a bunch of things at play here. Mm-hmm. And then while the experience of the small business owner has definitely varied quite a bit over the pandemic, I, I think it's still fair to say though that it's been a pretty wild ride for many Canadian small business owners. What are some of the challenges that you see small business owners facing as they look to the next year? Sure. I mean, there's always challenges facing uh, business owners. And uh, I mean, it's it's incredible to to see the resilience and uh, adaptability of uh of businesses and particularly to observe that through the pandemic. I think when you look at specific pandemic related um, challenges right now, a couple stand out. The first are supply chain delays um, and over three quarters of small business owners have identified that as, as a pain point, including both the cost and the availability of goods. And, uh, and secondly, um, almost uh, two thirds, uh, you know, find, uh, find the right staff or finding quality staff um, as everyone's return to work uh, is, is a challenge. Yeah, I've heard that quite a bit from several entrepreneurial small business owner friends that I have. And uh, yeah, they, some of them are actually really struggling finding employees that, that they're looking to hire. They, they have the money, their business has grown, and, and yet they are really struggling. Why do you think that is? Is it because people are kind of afraid to maybe go back to work because of the, the health concerns? Or what do you think that is? Um, I think there's many things at play. Uh, for sure, there's been a fair amount of disruption in the labor market. And, uh, and just as we were speaking earlier, um, you know, the, the pandemic has been a bit of a, uh, you know, a catalyst or, uh, or uh, a, a time for people to pause and reflect. Uh, I think, you know, some people have pursued an interest in business. Others have decided that they, uh, you know, want to pursue different uh, jobs and careers. So I think there's, there's just general transition going on in the labor market as well. Um, and, uh, you know, and that, that's, that's not a bad thing at all. Uh, it, it does pose challenges, though, for for business owners who are, you know, uh, seeking the right kind of staff. Mm-hmm. Do you have any sort of tips for businesses that maybe are struggling with some of these supply chain issues or staffing issues? Is there anything that you've seen where obviously there's no simple, you know, silver bullet answer uh, to, to these types of questions because uh, it's very situational, but are there any sort of uh, best practices or anything that you've seen work well for some businesses that maybe we can apply ourselves? You know, I think certainly always maintaining a degree of, uh, you know, operational flexibility and, uh, and reserves both, you know, financially and in, uh, and in your, uh, in your own, you know, uh, supplies. And, you know, I think when it comes to staffing, you know, it, it's important to think about um, just all the, all the different ways that you can um, be, uh, you know, an attractive employer. Um, so, you know, there's, there's all kinds of great employee uh, wellness uh, benefits that you can provide out there. There's uh 
there's there's great resources like um you know wello is a is a is a service that we, we promote to to some of our uh, clients and small business owners uh, and it's a it's a virtual healthcare platform that that uh, business owners can offer to their employees and so i think things like that um you know beyond just uh beyond just a salary uh you know make uh make it uh you know an attractive place for people to work at uh, at a small business yes very interesting time because it- Regarding the supply chain and these sort of labor shortages, just trying to having a hard time finding new people. I remember, you know, years ago, if, if I was starting a business, those two problems that you just mentioned wouldn't really be that much on my radar, right? Because typically, you can okay, we'll be able to source this. It's usually not a problem unless you're in some, you know, really special kind of market. But for the most part, right, uh, supply chains are, are fine. There's a lot of access and, you know, with international shipping and all that, it's not an issue. Same with the labor market. And now it seems like if someone is looking to start a business, the whole logistics thing, the, the supply chain and the staffing thing are actually two big things to consider and think about and have contingency plans for because they can't, we can no longer just assume that, oh yeah, those will be fine. It's, you know, it's these other things we have to worry about. Those seem to actually be really big uh, points, like you said. That's right. I mean, you know, I, th- I think there's, as I said earlier, there, there's always challenges uh, that business owners face. And I think uh, it's more the case that right now, as we exit the pandemic, the, these two are are kind of front and center. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they will probably work themselves out over time, though. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting because I've been a small business owner for years. And it's, I mean, and talking to other small business owners, it's always about the cash flow, right? And do you have enough to meet payroll, right? That's always such a big top of mind thing with pretty much every business owner, small business owner I've ever talked to, right? And so it's interesting to have these two, they're not really new challenges per se, but they're just, they seem so much more prominent now in this, you know, COVID age, it seems. That's right. Yeah. So it's, I think very, you know, you'd say specifically pandemic related. Mm-hmm, for sure. Now, what about those businesses that started during the pandemic? What do you think their chances of survival are compared to the typical success rate of new businesses in non-pandemic times? Yes, Cornell, you'd say that entrepreneurial drive remains really strong. Um, and seven in 10 business owners uh, agree that, uh, you know, a new wave of competitive and transformed small businesses, um, you know, are emerging through the pandemic and will, you know, continue to thrive afterwards. Um, and when you talk to business owners, uh, over three quarters of them agree that the pandemic has actually created new opportunities. Um, and over 55% of business owners uh, are optimistic about their ability to uh, to uh, continue to adapt and thrive as we exit the pandemic. So, you know, you would say that um, business sentiment and, and the entrepreneurial spirit uh, has uh, has remained really strong and is in, is very strong as we exit the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been very interesting. Sometimes I think if someone maybe just reads the headlines and isn't exposed to this, they might think, oh, everything is difficult. All businesses are failing. You know, a lot of doom and gloom kind of headlines that we see out there. Uh, but, but definitely, and, I'm, and that has been the case for some industries. And when I think of restaurants, for example, really struggling and, and different retail businesses as well. Uh, but definitely that's not true across the board. I mean, so many businesses have actually thrived. Those that, for example, like you mentioned, e-commerce that already had a good foothold in there or have been able to really pivot, right? And, and be more e-commerce centric, let's say, uh, have actually done really well. So I, I think it's important to in- encourage entrepreneurs as opposed to just scare them with 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 scary failure stats, right? Because there definitely have been businesses that, that have succeeded. And at the same time, I think if, if you were able to build a business and grow it during the pandemic or even just survive the pandemic, 
I mean, you're that much stronger, right? I mean, you've had to adapt. You're probably a much better business person than you were when you first started before the pandemic, right? And so uh, I think if anybody, the people, the ones that have survived, I think are just a lot stronger now uh, and a lot more flexible and adaptable. And I think that's going to set them up for the future when things are might look relatively easy when they don't have all these pandemic problems happening to them all the time. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, this is not to in any way downplay the real challenges that business owners have faced through the pandemic. It's been a very tough time. Um, and yet those those challenges have also uh, made people more resilient, uh, more adaptable and stronger. And I, and I think that that resilience will actually serve us all really well, um, you know, as we uh, as we, um, you know, reopen the economy and exit the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And now many of us have shopped at or supported small businesses in new ways, whether it's through online shopping, curbside pickup, et cetera. And we've seen a huge boom in e-commerce businesses as well, like you've already mentioned. Now, are those practices and trends here to stay, do you think? Or do you think many will kind of prefer to get back to in-person shopping and, and the way things used to be? Well, I, I think a, a mix. I mean, people will for sure um, you know, continue with in-store shopping. Um, that said, you know, there's a number of these, um, um, you know, trends, I guess, that uh, you'd say have been accelerated through the pandemic that are here to stay. And, and almost 80% of Canadians um, have said that they're going to continue with online shopping. Um, almost 80% are looking for uh, the continuance of things like curbside pickup and delivery, um, just because of the convenience and, uh, and even safety of it. Um, and uh, almost 90% of Canadians, um, you know, just have really enjoyed some of the personal touches and local touches that uh, that uh, the business owners have um, introduced into their the way they operate, uh, and so they're looking for those to stay. So I mean, you know, yes, you know, people will go back to shopping in person, and also, um, you know, look for some of these newer services uh, to continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good tip to not think of maybe the measures that were put in place during the lockdowns to just think of them as temporary. It sounds like you actually many people still want to have those options even when the pandemic is over eventually. Um, but then, like you said, there's always that sort of in-person piece as well that I think is really, uh, really important and sort of the relationship building from that angle. Um, that's great. Now, the pandemic has forced many Canadians to think about where they spend their money. We've already talked about this a little bit. Do you think consumers continue will continue to seek out businesses that align with their values? Or do you think it's more so about just being the lowest cost provider and really just focusing on that? No, I think that's the other thing that that really uh, comes up clearly is that uh, you know uh, almost three quarters of Canadians um, want to continue to support uh, local businesses and uh, shop in a socially responsible way, um, and so that means you know supporting local businesses, uh, supporting um, you know business owners um, from uh, from those different communities we discussed, um, and uh, and and I think that that is uh, something that will continue. Uh, and is particularly uh, significant uh, for uh, for millennials and uh, and Generation Z. Um, so you know you know as the as the, the future uh, consumers and everything with the purchasing power uh, that that's certainly a trend that uh, that we believe is here to stay. Mm-hmm. And what do you think has driven that? I mentioned kind of that example of seeing your favorite store or coffee shop closed down, that kind of thing. Do you, are there any other sort of things that you think really have gotten people to start thinking about this? Because I I remember not too long ago where 
I would hear more so about what is the lowest cost? Where can I get this the cheapest, right? That, that was sort of the narrative that I would hear most often, not so much about, hey, are they are they sourcing these goods ethically? You know, I, I wouldn't hear that as much. And now it seems like I'm hearing that more and more and more. Do you think there was some sort of catalyst that drove that? And if it was COVID, why do you think that is? Um, it, it's it's a great question. Um, we didn't get specific data points from that in uh, in our research recently. I, I think you just note that um, the pandemic has um, you know helped us all slow down uh, and in, and in a sense stay local for a time, and that's also made us appreciate um, the importance of our local businesses and business owners. Um, and then when you think about um, you know the the continued rise and concerns around um, you know trends in trends in our environment um, and, and trends in society. I think people have just decided that they want to, to spend their money on, on things that are important to them and in a way that supports uh, causes and people that are important to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really great to see Canadians move in that direction. I mean, even on the investing side, just how ESG investments have really taken off and a lot of people really have that very much on the radar. They, they want to invest responsibly, you know, socially responsible companies, that kind of thing. Not just, okay, where can I get the most prob- where, you know, where can I get the most capital gains at any cost kind of thinking? So yeah, it's, it's really nice to see uh, that being something that people actually really care about and you know, aren't just talking about it, but they're actually taking action and, and sort of voting with their dollars, uh, so to speak, both on the investing side from what I'm seeing on my end, but also on sort of that, you know, that retail and, and consumer side uh, as well, for sure. Um, what advice do you have for current or aspiring small business owners here in Canada? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, you know, I think if you, if you kind of just think about the, some of the trends that we've discussed, uh, a couple of, you know, a couple of tips really stand out. The first is, you know, embrace um, digital and e-commerce uh, solutions. Not not just for the great uh, customer experience that 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 uh, supports and delivers, but also as a way of streamlining um, your uh, your own operations. Um, secondly, you know, continue to cultivate and develop strong relationships with your with your local community and community members. You know, we know Canadians want to shop local and support local small business owners. So you know, embrace that and and stay in touch with your community and. There's all kinds of different ways to do that. We we've got a really neat uh, app uh, called Nextdoor that uh, that allows business owners to you know communicate and stay with and touch with um, you know members of the local community. And and finally, one thing we've uh, we've definitely noticed and come to appreciate is the importance of um, you know planning for uh, different contingencies and maintaining financial flexibility um, you know in your business and operations. And, uh, and of course, there's all kinds of uh, tools available to help you with that. Um, there's a tremendous, uh, you know, site, uh, RBC, a small business navigator that's got all kinds of tools and resources to help business owners, um, you know, plan and make sure that they, you know, remain resilient and, uh, and ready for anything. Awesome. And yeah, I'll be sure to link out to that as well in the show notes for everybody that wants to uh, check it out. And like I mentioned before, you're from RBC and, you know, you talked about this a little bit, but beyond banking, are there other services that RBC offers to Canadian entrepreneurs to make owning and running a business easier? Um, yeah, a number of uh, a number of different ways we can help. Uh, the first is through uh, Moneris and uh, and um, and Bookmark, which are which are two um, you know services and resources that can help you set up uh, e-commerce and uh, and digital payments uh, digital payment solutions. 
Um, Wello, I already mentioned, I think is an outstanding uh, thing for business owners to consider um, just in the way that it helps you support the, uh, you know, the well-being of your employees. Um, and uh, something called RBC Business Insights Edge uh, is, a, is a tremendous um, tool and resource. It's, a, it's an award-winning um, uh, system we have that, that uses data to help uh, business owners better understand their clients. Um, and uh, and uh, and uh, support their sales and the growth of their business. So all kinds of different ways that we can help business owners um, beyond just um, you know uh, great banking solutions, um, but other solutions to help them uh, with all aspects of their business. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll definitely be happy to link out to those uh, in the show notes as well. I also created a link for anybody that wants to see. So that the free resources page that RBC has, they have some really good resources there. And one thing that I liked in particular was, um, so Don mentioned a few sort of other businesses out there that can really help businesses. And so for some of these, I know RBC has arranged kind of like a deal where you can actually get a discount on some of those services. Um, so it's really, really neat. Uh, I know I've checked it out myself and it, it's a pretty good list of, of things that can really save you some money and then some time and, and help you automate things as well. So definitely something that I've I've enjoyed looking through. Um, and I made a kind of an easy to remember link for anybody that wants to check it out. It's just buildwealthcanada.ca slash RBC. And that will just automatically take you to that page and you can check out all the different free resources uh, that RBC has. Uh, but also those other resources that Don mentioned uh, just a moment ago, uh, I'll be sure to link out to those in the show notes as well. So you can just go to buildwealthcanada.ca and you'll see this episode on the front page and you'll be able to go in there and you can check those out as well. So um, Don, thank you so much. You guys have some really, really good uh, free and, and good educational resources, whether someone is an RBC client or not, I find uh, you, you guys definitely provide a lot of value and, and genuinely try to help uh, small business owners out here in Canada, uh, especially as we're going through these challenging times um, with COVID. Hopefully it's going to keep getting better. And uh, thank you so much for coming on and, and for sharing your expertise. And yeah, it's always great to hear uh, from you guys because you have so much data, so much insights uh, because you have so many small businesses that bank with you. Uh, and, and so it's always nice, I find, to look at sort of these trends and reports and studies that you guys do uh, to help us. Us, like small business owners like myself, you know, kind of get an edge and 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 have uh, you know save some costs or or, or save some uh, time as well um, by applying some of these things that you guys offer. So uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much, Cornell. It's been great to be here. Awesome. Thanks, Don. Bye. All right. Thanks for joining me this month. I hope you'll join me on the live retirement planning webinar, which is over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash retirement webinar. And if you're interested in getting that free assessment call that I mentioned earlier with Enriched Academy, which is the coaching program that I'm actually going through right now with them to really optimize our finances and investments, you can check that out for free over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash enriched. And last but definitely not least, a big thanks to Don for sharing his expertise with us. And that page again with all those free resources that I mentioned earlier for Canadian small businesses is over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash RBC. All right, so thanks for tuning in this month. I hope you got a lot out of it and have a wonderful and safe month. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca. 